Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's great to see uh, such crowd from the Abu Dhabi community as well, as NYUAD staff, students and faculty, as well as participants at the uh, Winter Institute of Statistical Genetics that we're organizing this week. So my name is Youssef uh, Idagdor. I'm a faculty in the biology program here in NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker for tonight, uh, Dr. Jeff Leake. Uh, so Dr. Leake is an associate professor of biostatistics and oncology at the Blomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I got to know uh, Jeff actually when I was a graduate student uh, I was facing challenges analyzing my own data, and he developed a method that actually helped me a lot with that project. So thank you very much, Jeff, for that. <laughs> so Jeff's specialty is uh, uh, public health genomics, uh, development of statistical tools and methodologies to deal with large data sets. Uh, he also uh, work on methods that can be applied not just in genomic data, but other types of uh, data sets. So tonight, he's gonna, share, gonna be sharing with us his expert opinion on the controversial claim that most published uh, medical data is false. Uh, this is a general topic that is of interest, not just to researchers and students, but also to clinicians and patients. Uh, whether you are dealing with data analysis or you are a member of the public and you read uh, news about disease or association studies, you think about this kind of questions. So uh, Jeff will be uh, tackling some of those questions. Uh, so with that, uh, I ask that you uh, help me uh, welcome Dr. Uh, Jeff uh, to the stage. Uh, Dr. Lick. This is on, okay, great. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. This is my first time uh, in the UAE and in Abu Dhabi, and I got to go see the mosque this morning, and I've, I really enjoyed my visit. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, Yusuf is being very kind. He was the first customer of that method I developed also as a graduate student, and it sort of helped uh, launch my career. Lots of people started using it after he did, so I probably owe him a, a, a debt there. So I'm going to be talking today about something that has nothing to do with uh, my primary research interest of my group, which is in genetics and genomics. I'm going to be talking about this uh, relatively controversial question, is most published uh, research false? And that seems kind of uh, like a surprising thing to, to suggest or to say uh, right on the face of it um, until you start reading headlines like this. So uh, I just picked this at random when I was making this slide, but this is how Facebook could raise your risk of cancer, which I think... Everyone in the room might think that that may be a little skeptical of this idea, that that, that might be true. Um, and then here's another one, Oreos more addictive than cocaine. Uh, I like Oreos very much, but I highly doubt that this is true. Um, and so these sorts of headlines are, are sort of pervasive in our uh, culture and in our uh, news. And so once you start to see headlines like this, you might start to think, well, maybe there is something to this, to this claim that most published research is false. Um, and then you can go to Google and you can say, what causes cancer? And so sunscreen, milk, and smoking, uh, one of those is a sure bet, and the other ones are maybe not so secure. And so I think that this is sort of, this demonstrates that it's sort of at the level of 
the entire set of searches people might do uh, across Google, that, that there's this idea that we're not entirely clear about what fraction of, of medical research or any kind of research is, is true. Um, and so that, of course, has important implications both scientifically, uh, more recently culturally, in terms of the, what we think of as fact and not fact. And so it's kind of an important large-scale question that I think uh, uh, is maybe fascinating and I've recently taken an interest in in my research group. And so my interest actually started um, with the reading of this paper. This is a, a very famous um, scientific paper um, with the title, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, um, by uh, a faculty member, Professor Ioannidis, who's now at Stanford. Um, and it, this paper was uh, published in 2005, and it suggested uh, a mechanism by which um, if researchers followed a particular use of statistical methods and models, how you could end up with um, mostly false findings in the medical literature. And so I'm going to sort of break down that argument. Um, and then one of the key uh, components of this uh, message that I'm going to be talking about today is sort of bringing some data and bringing some facts to bear on this question. So this original paper was uh, primarily philosophical. It described uh, sort of a framework under which it's po possible that you could have mostly false positive findings, but didn't collect any data to demonstrate that this is true. So this, of course, you can imagine a paper like that in the medical literature would get a lot of attention, and in fact it did. It was covered by a number of journals from the Wall Street Journals. Most science studies appear to be tainted by sloppy analysis. Um, my, one of my favorite economics blogs, why most published research findings are false. Um, science Daily, is most published research really false? And my favorite, Smart Planet decided to go all the way and just say most medical studies are wrong. Not much nuance left in that headline. And so this is Professor Ioannidis, if you uh, are wondering, uh, who's the guy that wrote these papers. And so um, this, this idea started to sort of seep into the consciousness of, of the way that people think about uh, scientific research. And then more recently, another paper came out, um, or another commentary came out, uh, Drug Development Raised Standards for Preclinical Research. This was written by a director of research at a, a pharmaceutical company in the United States called Amgen. And in this commentary, um, the author claims that they were unable at their company to replicate 46 of 53 prominent scientific studies in the medical and scientific literature. Um, this paper uh, also was covered widely by the news and, and is frequently cited as a, as a uh, source of evidence that most science isn't true. This paper also contains no data. There's no... The, none of the methods, data, studies, no information whatsoever about how they actually perform those replications. None of that is contained in this paper, but it's often held up to this as a sort of standard that the most science is, is not true or not replicable. And so I'm going to address these two questions, and I'm going to try to bring a little bit more data and borrow data from others and sort of bring it to bear to try to answer these questions more concretely and with, with data rather than sort of in a philosophical manner. So this is, I think, has played into a, a particular feeling that I think so this is my son, Henry, and he's, he's two, and he, when he doesn't get to go up the stairs, he's upset, as you can see. Um, and I think this is how most people feel about statistics. I would imagine if you took a statistics class, uh, you maybe felt a little bit uncomfortable or didn't like it, uh, unless you're a statistician like some of the fine fellows in the front row here. Um, and so I think that this feeling is partially why people have cl clung to this idea that most research is false. Is they sort of have a sneaking, or a sneaking suspicion that all statisticians are kind of charlatans anyway, and that like it's possibly that this is you can imagine how you could uh, kind of buy into the feeling that this might not be true. Um, and I know that's true because these are no joke published papers. This is one that says insert statistical method here in the in the abstract of this paper. So clearly they were paying a lot of attention to what statistical methodology that they were using. 
for this paper. And this is another one. This is a, a, a supplemental material now. Emma, this is in the published supplement. Emma, please insert NMR data here. Where are they? And for this compound, just make up an elemental analysis. So this one launched, a, there was an entire sort of blogosphere explosion around whether this was a nefarious um, act, whether they were making things up sort of nefariously, or whether it was just, you know, in the way that you tell somebody to, like, insert the material here. And it turns out, I think, it's not nefarious, but of course, it, it was a sort of a talk of a town in organic chemistry for a number of uh, months. Um, and so I feel about like this about statistics. I'm very excited. I'm a statistics professor. I write a statistics blog. I teach statistics classes. So I'm very excited, and I think that has motivated sort of my largely, as you'll see, more optimistic view of the way that scientific research is, uh, the current status of scientific research. But it also motivates me um, to say that I think part of the, the way to solve the problems that do still remain, the critical problems that do still remain, is getting more people to feel this way about statistics. So hopefully you'll feel a little bit more like that after the talk tonight. Um, so why does this matter? Uh, this uh, this question matters for, as you might imagine, for a number of reasons. Um, but I thought I'd just point out a couple. One is that, so th this paper originally was in the medical literature, and the follow-up responses were all in the medical literature. And so um, that was fine. Um, and then over time, it sort of increasingly seeped into the popular consciousness. So this is an Economist article, which is a, a more popular magazine. It's in a number of other magazines where they talk about how you know science is maybe no longer self-correcting. It's maybe no longer accurate. It's maybe no longer trustworthy. Um, and so this is another article. This is in the Los Angeles Times now, and it was talking about how um, the U.S. federal government was sort of investigating whether scientists were um, being sloppy or being motivated to do research in a bad way. This, of course, has major implications for those of us in the U.S. that are primarily funded by the United States government to do scientific research. It makes you nervous when they start thinking of ways to investigate you, especially when those the motivation or the primary motivator was a philosophical argument rather than some data that was collected by people. So that makes you a little bit nervous. Um, and then there's actually broader, like, very concrete uh, questions that I, I think that also uh, this, this raises and brings uh, home. So it's, uh, uh, this is a plot. This is one of my favorite plots. It's from the Wall Street Journal. This is time on the x-axis. So this is 1930s to the 1960s. And this is the number of uh, uh, polio cases in uh, several United States states. So these are like districts in the United States. And you can see that the polio vaccine was introduced here. And so all of this polio just kind of goes away after the vaccine is introduced. And so despite this and much more evidence that suggests that vaccines are a very important thing and are very important for public health, there's a, a rising incidence of, of parents not vaccinating their children. And part of the reason that they use to justify that is, well, those doctors, they don't know what they're talking about anyway. That research is all gar you know, garbage anyway. So I think that there's even like sort of social, high-level social public health implications of this, of this debate. Okay, so let's get back, let's get to it. Let's ask the question, is most published research false? And to, to add, answer this question or, or to bring some data to bear, we first need to sort of dissect the argument that um, Professor Ioannidis made in his original paper. Um, and so to do that, we need to think about what is an experiment. So what is a scientific experiment? And so this is a very, like, a statistical view. Like, if, a stat if you ask a statistician to describe a scientific experiment, it's something like this. You start off with some uh, population and question that you care about. So you might be asking, for example, among the population of people that um, are cancer patients, if we give them a particular chemotherapy, will they, you know, respond to that treatment? So that's a, a hypothesis that they have. Then you would design an experiment where you maybe randomize some people to get that chemotherapy and other people not to. Then a person performs the experiment. You collect some data. You have a plan of how you're going to analyze that data. 
that's usually rigorously defined in the case of clinical studies. So for example, in the United States, there's regulatory agencies that if you want to prove that a drug works, you have to design your study in advance and hand over that analysis plan in advance. And then the analyst just has to follow that to the T. Um, in other types of research, like for example in genomics where I work, it's much more common to do exploratory analysis where maybe this isn't defined in advance. Um, then the analyst runs some code and they get some estimate and at the end of the day you make some claim, say like the drug works or the drug doesn't work, okay? So we need to know this because the main thing that this paper is concerned with is this last bit down here. When, when we say false, most research findings are false, we're talking about a particular claim. We aren't saying anything about how the study was run necessarily or who the experimenter was or what the data set was like or anything like that. We're just saying that the claim is incorrect. Whatever the claim the person is making is, is not correct um, for that study. So the, when we're talking about this, we usually talk about it in terms of hypotheses tested. So if you go back here, we have a hypothesis that we've picked at the beginning. The example I was using that hypothesis might be this particular chemotherapy works for, um, for this subpopulation of people that have cancer. And so we're going to test that hypothesis. And his model, the model that uh, Professor Ioannidis proposed, starts like this. So imagine you have uh, the scientific community at large is testing a thousand hypotheses. So this is obviously they're testing way more than that, but like let's consider a simple case. So imagine there are a thousand hypotheses being tested. Um, and then imagine that of those thousand hypotheses being tested, scientists are very, very bad at pre-selecting which ones will be, will work out. So imagine if that's true and only one percent of the cases will the hypothesis actually be something that works, okay? So this is part of his argument is that we'll talk about in a minute this, this assumption that only 1% of hypotheses are true. So that means of the, the 1,000 hypotheses, 10 are true. And so typically when you run a medical study, you design it in a way such that the power of that study is 80%. And what does that mean? It means if there is a real effect, if the hypothesis is true, we have an 80% chance of detecting it. That's the way you design the experimental study, usually in medical studies. So among these 10 true hypotheses, 80% are called significant. So there are eight statistically significant results that you might imagine publishing in the literature. Okay? Does everybody kind of follow that argument there? So then on the other side, we have 990 false hypotheses because most scientists are bad at picking hypotheses according to this argument. And usually when you design these studies, again, the, the, the data that we're using to, to measure these hypotheses, it's, there's noise in it. So we can't always get it right. And so we usually when they're designed to be, have 80% power, they're also designed to have a type 1 error rate of 5%. So what does that mean? It means among all the things where there isn't any, where the hypothesis is wrong, about 5% of the time we'll still call it significant by accident. We'll make a mistake about 5% of the time. So just by percentages, we're doing pretty well. 80% of the time there's a real thing, we find it. 5% of the time where there isn't anything, we accidentally call it something real. But since the proportions are so unbalanced, we end up with 990 times 5% is 50 significant findings from the stuff where there was no signal. Does everybody see that argument? So now if you just do some fractions, 50 divided by 8 plus 50 is about 86% of significant results are false positive findings. Okay? So this is the, that is the core. There's some like, there's some statistical uh, philosophizing around the edges, but this is the core argument of uh, Professor Ioannidis' uh, paper. So the first question you might have is, are our scientists really this bad at selecting hypotheses? And so I would, I've met a lot of scientists and work with them, and I would get, my guess, my hypothesis was that that was not true. Um, and then the other question is, 
um, and this is a little harder to assess, are studies really being designed in such a way that there's 80% power all the time and 5% type 1 error, which is also probably not true. So the question that we sort of pose to ourselves is imagine this theoretical model, is there a way that we can go out and try to estimate this quantity? So this, this is entirely philosophical. I've made up all these numbers, and I've guessed that it's 1%, and I've guessed that it's 80%. So is there a way that we can estimate this? So there is, it turns out, and, and the way to do that is with the most popular statistic ever created, the p-value. So um, if you've taken a statistics class, you've for sure run into a p-value. If um, you took a Bayesian class from Ken, uh, you, you probably heard it was a terrible thing. But it turns out that the p-values are very popular, and that's going to be useful for us if we treat them as data. Not as a unit of inference, but as a, as a, as a piece of data that we're going to use to try to estimate this false discovery rate. So to do that, I need to, to tell you what a p-value is, I need to give you a little bit of jargon. So um, when, when statisticians talk about hypotheses, they generally talk about the null hypothesis and the alternative hypothesis. The null is that there's nothing going on, that the hypothesis is false, that you're not, you're chasing a dead end. The alternative is the thing you hope, which is that you're, you're finding something that's, that's real. So you're trying to falsify this null in some sense, is the goal of what you're trying to do. And the p-value is basically, you can think of it at a very uh, hand-wavy level, is it's the probability the data that we've observed are surprising if this null is true. So if there's nothing going on, the p-value is the probability that we got, that the data that we got are surprising. And so you don't have to necessarily, you, there will be a quiz uh, afterwards during the reception, so you should memorize this. But other than that, you, you don't need to know what this means. It's more important to realize there, that p-values have several very nice properties which we can take advantage of to try to estimate this rate of false discoveries. Now, I like this, but like I said, certain folks don't like p-values. Uh, recently, a psychology journal made headlines by banning p-values and indeed all of statistical inference from their journal. Um, I think, there's a blog post I wrote <laughs> that said, I think that they get a bad rap. We can fi often find them to be useful. And uh, this is the reason why I think p-values get such a bad rap. Um, you can think of the, the way that sta uh, scientists give each other credit is through citations. It's sort of like a like on Facebook. It's the scientific equivalent of a like. And so if the p-value got a citation or a like every time it was used, it would have very conservatively 3 million likes, which is a lot even on Facebook. So that's... It's a very popular statistic. It's the most popular statistic ever created. Um, and so this is annoying to people who don't like p-values, but will be very useful to us because we're trying to collect data and there's a ton of it out there. So this is a p what's called a p-value histogram. If you've, do, if you've done any genomics, so Yosef and I do all the time, and Greg, you've seen a million of these p-value histograms, and I'm going to explain what it means and explain how we're going to use it. So this is a collection of p-values. So it's a, not just one of those probability measures, but it's imagine about like 10,000 of these p-values, okay? And I've shown, I'm showing you a histogram which shows you how frequent different sizes of p-values are. In other words, in this histogram, you can see the p, so the x-axis is the p-value. It's between 0 and 1. And on the y-axis, it's the number of p-values that have that value. So you can see the small p-values, there's a bunch of them. And then over here, the big p-values, there aren't as many. Everybody see that? So that's how you kind of read this. So they have a very particular property, these statistics. If calculated correctly, and that's a big F, and we can argue about that later, whether people can do that well or not, then this is the signal. Small p-values are basically, remember, it's that probability that the data um, uh, would, would be surprising under the null. And so you basically, if you get really tiny p-values, this is sort of the signal that you get. And then this 
is the uh, noise. It's basically like these, the, the p-values you get that are really tiny, those are the ones that correspond to things where there really is an effect for the most part, and the ones that are like flat out here are the ones that correspond to no effect. Now, you can see what would be really nice is the p-value is basically zero every time there's a real signal, and the p-value is one every time that there isn't a signal, but that's not unfortunately how it works because data have noise in them. So the p-values that have signals, sometimes they're a little bit bigger, sometimes they're a little bit smaller, and when there's no signal, there's a property that the p-values have to be uniformly distributed. In other words, they're equally likely to be any value between zero and one. Okay, so statisticians have used this for a long time in my area of genomics because we typically do things like what people call big data studies. We might measure something about every gene, the expression of every one of the 20,000 genes in your body, and we might associate that with some outcome and calculate one p-value for every gene. That's 20,000 p-values. And so you would get a histogram that looks like this. And one thing that statisticians would do is they would break this up, for those of you that are a little more mathematically inclined, they treat this like a mixture model. And so what they basically say is, we know that some of the p-values come from the case where there's no signal, those are flat, and then we have some of the p-values that come from the case where there is some signal, and those are kind of pushed over here towards zero. And so a lot of people, myself, and many other statisticians have spent way too much time staring at these histograms and trying to figure out ways to estimate the proportion that are coming from the case where there's no signal and the proportion from the case where there is signal. So that's something um, called the, you know, the proportion of null hypotheses. So in real data, it looks like this. You don't get these handy labels as to what's the stuff that comes from signal and the, what's the stuff that not. You have to kind of like tease that apart from the data directly. And there are like fancy statistical models for doing that that are really well validated in the area of genomics and are really well used. Okay? So what we decided was, so I work in that area, and I, so I was familiar with these methodologies that would try to estimate the proportion that came from the case where there's signal and the proportion that, where there wasn't. And in my case, it's very easy because my collaborators come to me with piles of p-values all the time and ask me to do this problem. In the case that we're working on, we had to go out and get some data first. We need to collect p-values that we can apply this technology to to try to estimate the proportion that come from the null. So this is a, a, a website, PubMed, that, um, where you can get data on uh, papers that are published in the United States and other places. Um, and so in this paper, in this, if you look very closely in Squint, there is some data in this abstract. And so right here, there's a p-value that's reported as being less than 0.001 and another p-value that's equal to 0.02. So one thing that you could do is you could run, if you, if you have some computer code, you can run through all of these papers and scrape that data out of those um, abstracts. So that's how we're going to collect some p-values from the abstracts of these published papers. Okay? So we did that for five or six of the top medical journals. Um, for the years two, uh, 2000 to 2010, where we went through every abstract and pulled out the p-values that were reported in that abstract, okay? And so this is the format. I show you this mostly because I experienced pain, and so now you have to experience the pain, just a tiny bit of what I did. So this is what the, how the p-values are formatted um, when you pull them out of the abstracts. And there is one in particular that you may note is extremely painful and cost me hours of my life. Can anyone guess which one it is? That is not a zero. That is an O. And 
all your code breaks when it's a letter, not a number that you're searching for. And this is literally like hours of my life to find one p-value that had an O in it. So that author has got many nasty emails from me for formatting their paper incorrectly. But it, it was sort of the Wild West, but you can spend some time, which we did, synthesizing these, scraping them out, cleaning them up. And then you end up with data that looks like this. So this is all the p-values that were published in the journal JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is sort of one of the top medical journals in, in the United States, maybe the world. Um, and so you can see that there's lots of tiny p-values. So there are 300 that are less than, say, 0.001. And then there's not very many out here to the right. So this isn't surprising because there's um, something that people have known about for a long time, which is sort of the, some people call it the file drawer problem. Some people call it publication bias. Basically, in order to get your paper into a fancy journal like this, your p-value has to be less than 0.05. Why is that true? For customary reasons, basically. <laughs> so uh, a long time ago, somebody suggested 0.05 as a potential cutoff, and it got codified, and now that's what you have to do if you want to get your paper published. And so that's unfortunate um, for us because we, we don't get to observe. There are probably lots of p-values that people calculated that were out here, and they're just not reported in this literature because you can't get it into the journal with that, with that p-value. So in fact, in this particular data set, 77% of all p-values are less than 0.05. Okay, so this is a problem for that methodology of the technology that I talked about for estimating the proportion of these that are coming from sort of false signals, but you can do some sort of statistical fix-ups to that model um, by basically restricting the model to only modeling the p-values that are less than 0.05. So for the statisticians in the audience, we just like ignore all the data for p-values greater than 0.05, and then we only model those, those p-values that are less than 0.05, this results in a different statistical model with a parameter in there that we're going to estimate, which is the proportion of p-values less than 0.05 that are published that come from the case where there was no signal. In other words, this is that quantity that we're trying to estimate right there. So in this statistical model, for the p-values less than 0.05, we have a parameter that we're trying to estimate, which is the proportion that are false discoveries among those reported, and that turns out to be the estimate of this probability, which is the, or the, this proportion, which is the thing that we hypothesize might be really high, okay? I'm gonna spend the next 30 minutes of my lecture going through this equation in details. Um, not gonna do that, I promise. It's late in the evening and there's uh, a reception afterwards. Let's just say, let's just assume I know how to do math. You can ask some of the gentlemen who are my professors in the front row later if that's true or not. Um, but we did fit this statistical model and we estimated the proportion of false discoveries for a number, for each of these journals in each of these years over time. And so these are five journals. This is the Lancet, Journal of the American Medical Association, New England Journal of Medicine, British Medical Journal, and then an outgroup, uh, American Journal of Epidemiology, which should behave a little bit differently because these first four tend to publish medical, primarily clinical studies, and AJE tends to pro publish primarily observational studies which some people might consider to be like, likely to be a little less reliable than the, the medical literature. So this is the false discovery rate, or the, the proportion that are sort of false discoveries. That was, so 86% is what it would be if we were estimating like we hypothesized. Um, and it turns out that for the most part, for most journals in most years, except for this AJE had a bad year in 2002, but other than that, the journals tend to have a relatively low false discovery rate. Now this isn't perfect, this is higher than you would expect um, if everything was going perfectly according to plan. It's still uh, about a 
This is like uh, about a 20% false discovery rate, which still isn't great. 14% um, across all journals with a standard deviation of 3%. So this is what we estimated. So this, we originally published a paper or wrote a paper where we said, uh, you know, the data suggests most published research is true. And it turns out you can actually look at a p-value. Per p-value, remember we only modeled the p-values between 0 and 0 0.05. You can calculate the probability it's going to be a false positive for each different p-value. So for a p-value of 0.01 in the journal AJE, it has about a 11% chance of being a false discovery. You can do this with a simple Bayesian posterior probability calculation for each p-value, also borrowed from the genomics literature. One thing that's interesting about this calculation, the reason why I show this plot but not one that I could show is you can calculate this for, say, institutions. You can calculate a false discovery rate by institution or by investigator. I don't have tenure yet, so I am not going to show you those plots. So, um, but uh, here's an example of one I've cherry-picked to make me look good. Um, so this is a probability that this is, so this is a very famous paper. Um, folks will recognize this name, Anil Podi, if you've worked in genomics. This is a very famous retracted cancer uh, signature that they were claiming that could predict the response to chemotherapy, and it turned out to be wrong in a number of different levels. And it turns out we estimate the probability that it's a false positive signature as being relatively high. So this is a case, this is of course a cherry-picked case. I can show you others, but we showed, I'm showing you one where the model seemed to work pretty well. That, this study was ultimately retracted. So we wrote this paper, uh, and the co-author here, uh, Leah Jager, is actually my wife. Um, and you'll see in a minute why she will never write a paper with me ever again. So we wrote this paper, and we used this relatively, we also went for the big title, saying that empirical estimates suggest most public medical research is true. And we couldn't get it published anywhere. We, we kept sending it out to review, and it kept getting like seriously rejected by the same referee, because we kept getting the same referee report at every single journal we went to. Um, and so we posted it online as a preprint, which is a non-peer-reviewed publication. Um, and then it got picked up by the MIT Tech Review, um, and they wrote about this paper in the, in the news. And then I had the worst morning that an assistant professor of statistics could have. Uh, Andrew Gelman is a very famous statistician in the US, an extremely widely read blog about statistics, and he destroyed my paper. He wrote, he said it's the stupidest thing ever, and was just like, and I, you've got to realize that what, what this meant for me is I woke up one morning and I had like 500 unread emails that said you have to go read Andrew Gelman's blog right now, and so I went and read it, started to feel sad, didn't know what to do, and then I thought about it and I realized I also have a very widely read statistics blog. And so I responded with my own blog post um, where I trashed his reasoning and said he's a silly guy and doesn't know what he's talking about and blah, blah, blah. So this went back and forth on our blogs for a little while in the commentaries of our blogs and so forth. And then I wrote to the editors of a, of a journal and I asked them, hey, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this paper. Do you maybe want to publish it? And so they, they ended up doing that. They ended up publishing the paper in Biostatistics. Um, and they published it because, largely because while there was disagreement about whether the, the, the paper was right or not, all of our code and data were made publicly available so people could go back through and kind of really check all of our work and make sure it was okay. And so as part of that, uh, a large number of people, they, they recruited a large number of people to reanalyze our data. So people like uh, Yoav Benjamini, who invented the false discovery rate, David Cox, um, a bunch of quite serious people went back and reanalyzed our data and came up with various different estimates, some of which were higher, some of which were lower, including Professor Ioannidis, who 
who was very uh, strongly responsive to our paper. Um, and uh, but none of nobody came up with an estimate that was like most you know 86% or above was was false. Some got higher than than we did. Okay. So the next thing that we're doing, this is now data that you're seeing for the first time. It hasn't been published yet. We are now collecting, so this was, that original study was based on about 30,000 p-values that we collected from the medical literature. Since that time, us and several other groups have collected p-values from many, many other areas as well. This is now a popular thing to do, scraping p-values out of, out of journals. Um, scientists probably could think of something better to do, but this is what we're doing. So this is uh, a collection, this represents a collection of something like 5 million p-values across a variety of different areas. So that represents something like 1.2 million studies that were conducted, um, including in the abstracts, not in the abstracts, and so forth. And there's a variety of different fields here represented. So you can see, so this is, just to orient you to this picture, the x-axis is the p-value. So it starts at 0, and it goes to 0 0.05. And then this uh, box is showing you where the bulk of the data is. So for example, in economics, most of the p-values are small. Um, and then in computer sciences, they have a, a, a broader distribution is what this plot is sort of showing you. So you can kind of look field by field. So here in medicine, you can see this is uh, now 1.4 uh, million p-values from medicine as opposed to the 20,000 or so that we, we used previously. Um, and then in economics, like I mentioned, they have the smallest p-values. So one interesting, I'm calling attention to economics and, and medicine. Keep in mind that economics has the tiniest p-values. So you might think your default reaction might be, oh, well, then they probably have the lowest false discovery rates because they have the lowest p-values. But it turns out not to be true. If you estimate the sort of, I've, I'm, this plot, the statisticians will cringe at this plot a little bit because I'm abusing the notation. But this is the, uh, this is the estimate and the confidence interval for these different, um, for the false discovery rate for these different fields. And so you can see, for example, that economics is actually estimated to have a relatively high false discovery rate despite publishing many, many small p-values, even a little bit higher than, say, medicine, which has, has larger p-values. And that's, that's largely due to the fact that you can kind of see this publication bias creeping into econo the, the economics literature in a way that's even more extreme than you see in medicine or some of these other fields. So this is work that we're, that's ongoing. We're trying to estimate sort of this false discovery rate. This is the x-axis here is the false discovery rate. We're trying to do that for, or, or the rate at which things are not true um, among the published results. We're trying to do that for a variety of fields. And one thing that you'll note is, again, over here was the claim, you know, 86% or so of results are false discoveries, and we're not seeing that in the data for, for most fields. So this is probably a good sign that we're not completely off base, but again, this is higher than we would hope it would be. It's still quite a few false discoveries. So this brings us to the second question, and so it's, does most science fail to replicate? So you remember there was two papers I told you about. First was the Ioannidis paper, where they talked about um, whether a result was false or not. Um, and then there was the Amgen paper, where they claimed that they couldn't replicate these studies. Okay. So this is the second part of the second piece of this. And so we've done some work on this, this paper as well. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is, again, remember, these are the different parts of a scientific study that you have to have to, to, to be able to evaluate a scientific study. Um, so the, you can, you can, there's particular terminology that scientists use when they talk about uh, reproduce and replicate. So those are two words that have meaning. A study is reproducible if you use the exact same, if you take the exact same data and change out, and the exact same code, and change out your analyst, and you get the exact same values for the estimates and the claims. So basically, 
everything stays the same, but you hand your code over to a new analyst who reruns it, and they get the exact same results out, then a study is called reproducible. Replicable, which is what Amgen is talking about, is imagine you have one study, and then you run a new study where you get a new, you use the same exact experimental protocol, but you have a new experimenter who collects new data, and they hand it off to a new analyst who potentially runs new code but doesn't necessarily have to, and then they should get results and claims that are sort of equivalent to what you got in the first study. So the difference between reproducible is, here you don't change the data, you just change the code. Here you change the data itself when you're, when you're redoing the study. But you try to mimic the first study as closely as possible. So first, this paper, as I mentioned before, it doesn't have any data, code, results, anything. So we can't evaluate it at all. But they did produce, for just, for, for three of the 56, they actually wrote separate scientific papers describing how they replicated things. So here's an example of one of those. So this came out in F1000 Research. And so it's talking about the inactivation of a particular gene and whether it um, uh, has a particular response in neurodegenerative disorders. So one important thing that the several people pointed out about this replication is that typically when you do a replication, you try to make the experiments be exactly identical to each other. But in this study, they didn't do that. They actually, uh, the original study was in mice and the second study was in rats. So they, they've switched the organism that they're measuring things in, and so they get a different signal out, and now you don't know, is it because they switched organism, or is it because they're actually, the signal actually wasn't that good? So the best sort of case of replication that we have available to us now is this more recent study estimating the reproducibility of psychological science. So in this study, they took about 100 different scientific studies in psychology, and they tried to replicate them. They went and talked to the investigators, got all the details, tried to make it exactly identical as often as possible, and they were pretty, they were pretty close to doing that. And they originally, the, the headlines about this paper said that most science was, was false, and they did that because, again, they claimed the p-value in the replication study wasn't as small as the p-value in the original study. So a, a student of mine in my group took the data from the study and, and calculated something called a prediction interval. So they took, so there's the original effect, that's the original sort of calculation that people made. The effect size is on the zero to one scale. And then this is the effect that you got in the replicated study. So if ideally, if there was the replication produced exactly the same results as the original study, all of these dots, each dot, there's 100 dots, one for each study, each dot would lie right on that line. But of course they don't, because there's random variation in the experimenters that did this. In fact, sometimes the effect was positive in the original study. So like in the original study here, the effect was positive, but in the replication, it was negative. So one thing that you could look at this and say, okay, if that's true, then this, this one that's negative is definitely a failure to replicate because it's had a positive effect, but then it was a negative effect in the repeated study. But once you account for the variation, some of these studies had very small sample sizes and highly variable populations. Once you take that into account, you can look at how many of them fell outside of the interval we would predict them to have um, once we did the original study. And so once you do that, only about 70, about 70%, the gray dots, fell within the prediction interval that you would expect to see in a repeated study. Even some of the ones where the effect switched signs. So here the effect was negative, but the original study was positive. And despite that, it was such a small study in the original study, we basically had no good estimate of the original effect size. So all this to say, again, that there's some pot there, you know, this isn't perfect, it's not 100%, but there's a relatively high rate, actually, when you go look at their studies 
of data of experiments that fall uh, into the into the uh, prediction intervals. So I thought I'd conclude with something which I think is is important. So I think. Uh, as you've probably guessed from the way I've been talking today, I'm a little more optimistic about how science is going. When you sort of bring data to bear on the problem, it's a relatively low false discovery rate, and, and things tend to replicate for the most part. There's obviously still major problems. And so I thought that I'd just point those out because it's sometimes a little bit counterintuitive. Um, so one is that data has uh, become much larger than it used to be, and, and people don't know what to do with it. So this is what data used to look like in biology not that long ago. You would like cut out a little thing out of a gel and take a look at it and say, there's something here, there's nothing here. So the data is like one and nothing. Um, and you would do this painstakingly for many, many of these. Um, uh, but it would take you a long time to collect data. Now we get a petabyte of data into the sequence read archive every month. A petabyte is like, thousands and thousands of movies worth of data every single month into the uh, d uh, sequence read archive. So there's this massive amount of data that people don't know necessarily how to handle. And I think that's causing some of the problems that people are pointing out when they talk about why most research is false. Another one is this cartoon, which I love. It's, I don't know how to do statistics, but it doesn't matter because I didn't have data. And I think it's the same thing. You know, data wasn't available or only a few people had it. So not everybody had to do, do, know how to do statistics and now I like to say we're all statisticians now. So you probably looked at the weather and it said the percent chance it was going to rain today. Or you read the sports scores and tried to see if your team was likely to win or not. Or you have to go into the doctor and they tell you what the chance you have some particular disease is. You are interacting with statistics all the time and data all the time. And you can't even, you can't help it. It's part of the culture now. Um, and so I think training hasn't caught up with that because maybe not everyone has taken a statistics class. A really concrete example of that is there's no requirement to take any statistics for medical school in the United States, which is a little bit scary, right? Like all your medical doctors are not required to know statistics in the United States. Um, and then another one, this is kind of related to the, some of the funny stories I told about the blog fights and everything. Papers can be published now without being peer-reviewed. You can put them on BioArchive or Archive. These are preprint servers. And so that is great because it means we can disseminate knowledge much more quickly than we could before. But it's also scary because you never know what's going to be, you know, there's no vetting process for the stuff that's up there or a very light vetting process. And so uh, that, that leads to people doing things like I have a, a Twitter account for our uh, blog and I tweet out papers. And it's helpful if my papers have a clever title because more people will, will read them if I tweet out a paper with a clever title. So that's put some pressures on me that maybe are not good in terms of how I would publish work. And so the, the ultimate example of that is now like famous scientists get, you know, like famous sort of celebrity scientists get things like TED Talks and so forth where they're sort of uh, talking about their idea sort of abstracted completely from the scientific details. Um, and then the last thing is, so this is an example of a blog. If you read, uh, if you're in the genomics literature at all, this is one of the angriest people blogging in genomics right now, Lior Pachter, um, and where he frequently destroys people's paper like Andrew Gelman did to me. Um, uh, in these in his blog posts, which again are not peer reviewed, and there's sort of like this whole sort of side literature that we don't know about um, that isn't indexed or, or, or kept up with the main literature, and so that's another reason why people are sort of worried about it. And I think the main issue is that we haven't had time to catch up. This is the number of papers posted to BioArchive from 2013 to 2016, and you can see that it's sort of just like going up rapidly over time. And it's only getting faster. And so we're seeing sort of a, a, an explosion of interest in preprint servers, of data, and so forth at a time when training didn't have a chance to keep up. 
So I think the argument that I often make when to conclude with these sort of, with this talk is that if we do want to tackle the problem of if you're still worried, even despite my hopefully best efforts to convince you that science is probably still okay, if you're still very worried, here's what you should be doing. You should be improving your education in statistics. Is my my pitch, um, and so we teach. Uh, there's the summer or the winter institute uh, in statistical genetics, which has been an excellent way for people to learn. I think everybody that participated in that is really buying into this concept of uh, learning about statistics and data. Um, we also teach a bunch of online classes where you can take them for free to learn about data um, online through the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab. And then if, if for scientists that are worried about how to deal with Twitter and preprints and all the modern developments, I wrote this little book that's also available for free if people want to read it. Um, which also trains people how to use these sort of more modern technologies. And then finally, and I think this is the big one, um, and I, uh, um, for, for people who are executives and provosts and so forth, the, the data deluge and these changes in academics are happening right now. You know, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And so uh, a key thing that's uh, causing problems for junior people, I think, is that those changes have happened over a time scale that we're barely keeping up with, and you know, we increasingly have to talk to administrative staff and so forth who haven't kept up as well. So we are trying to treat, create executive style education for people who want to uh, learn about how to deal with data, how to deal with the modern uh, publishing process and all that, also available for free online. So um, I'm just going to conclude there um, with uh, some thanks to um, so this work. The replication work was all done by a former student of mine, Prasad Patil, from my group, an outstanding biostatistician. Um, and then Tamina Boca, who's also a former student of mine, now an assistant professor at Georgetown, and um, my wife, Leah Jagger, who will never write a paper with me again after our experience. Um, and if you are interested in what I've had to talk about here today or you want to get any of the links out of the talk or anything like that, um, all of the talks or slides are available at gtweek.com slash talks. Thank you very much for your attention. Let's thank Jeff one more time. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.